0: Welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Saskia Vogel. This week, we're taking you to New York City for the highlight of our event series for the horror issue.
1: On November 29th, Paul Oster and Don DeLillo read from and talked about their work in
0: horror and beyond with Granta editor John Freeman.
1: Hi, thanks for coming. Um, thank you for uh, Barnes & Noble for giving us this great space. Welcome to Occupy Bookstore. Uh, the police will start kicking you out in five minutes, so if you have a generator running, um, get the hell out. Um, I also want to thank uh, two editors, uh, Francis Cody and Nan Graham, um, who are Don DeLillo and Paul Oster's editors at Scribner and Henry Holt, um, because they had the bright idea of sending the pieces which appear in this issue of Granta to me, um, and I thought that was a really good idea uh, because it enriched our issue immensely. But it, it, it raises a more important point, which is that um, although this night is, yes, uh, our big event for Granta Horror, the most important thing about Granta is the writers that we publish. Um, uh, we're not signals operators. Uh, we rely on the signal operators uh, around the world, which is the writers that we publish. Um, and and I can't think of two better um, ears to the ground in America especially than Paul Oster and Don DeLillo. Um, Over more than 30 books, uh, Paul Oster has written with a disarming and also spooky clarity about various emotional states, about New York City, um, about his own life in the incredible memoir, The Invention of Solitude. Um, He's written books of poems and prose several screenplays pl- and, and, and as well as directing his own films. Um, but I think if there's one thing that, that, that ties together all of the, that work, and it is an impressive and uh, enormous body of work, um, it is his ability to look at the world with a clarity which is, um, which is remarkable and which unsettles. Um, And Don DeLillo, I think, has often been looked upon as a kind of prognosticator of our world. Um, But what we forget when we look at him that way is that he is also one of the most beautiful writers in American history. Um, He paints and prose the way that I think the abstract expressionists could make painting be many different things at once and yet be so clear. Um, Over his 40-year career, it is now 40 years since his first novel, Americana, was released. He has told us the dream life of American living and he's done it with book after book which are unfailing and in the, in the beauty of their sentences and the rigor with which he attends to his characters and it is an enormous pleasure to publish both of them um, because I think uh, they're two of America's most significant writers and we've <coughs> published Don DeLillo* four times and Paul going on ten. Um, so this is hopefully not the last, but the latest uh, installment of their work in Granta. Um, for the more official biography, for those of you who have wandered in here looking for Coldplay, um, I should, uh, I, and if you're here, thank you for coming, um, Granta is a literary magazine based in London, and these are two writers. Um, Don DeLillo is the author of more than 16 novels, including Americana, The Names, White Noise, Libra, Mautu, Underworld, and most recently Point Omega. Point Omega. Several films, a play, um, sorry, several plays, a film called Game Five, and The Angel Esmeralda, the book which, um, yeah, Game Six. See, I'm a Yankees fan. Uh, <laughs> I right, hold out um, for. Uh, he is the winner of the National Book Award, the Penn Faulkner Award, the Penn Saul Bellow Award, and the Jerusalem Prize. Um, please welcome him now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you're, you're first. Read first. Um, and for the official introduction of Paul Oster, ah. other than my ramblings, um, he's the author of more than 30 books of poetry and prose, including the New York Trilogy, the memoir, The Invention of Solitude, The Music of Chance, The Book of Illusions, and most recently, Sunset Park. He wrote and directed the films Smoke and Blue in the Face, and Lulu on the Bridge, and The Inner Life of Martin Frost. He is a winner of numerous awards, including the Prix Medici and several other French awards, which I will not kill with my accent. Um, please welcome Paul Oster.
2: Thank you, John. I wasn't sure who was coming up here first, but we're back on track. Um, the, Pages in Granta that I've published in this new issue are an extract from a book that I've finished but has not been published yet. It's not a novel. It's a a piece of autobiographical writing, um, mostly written in fragments. Uh, Mostly, when I try to describe this book to myself, I call it a history of my body um, the title is Winter Journal, and there, there are some pages about my mother, and I, I'm going to read just a few of them, um, because time is short. Um, these pages are written after she died, which was approximately 10 years ago. Um, and so here we go just plunging in in the middle. She probably wasn't beautiful, not beautiful in the classic sense of the term, but pretty enough, more than attractive enough to make men stare at her whenever she walked into a room. What she lacked in the way of pure good looks, the movie star looks of certain women who may or may not be movie stars, she made up for by exuding an aura of glamour especially when she was young, from her late 20s to her early 40s. A mysterious combination of carriage, poise, and elegance. The clothes that pointed to, but did not overstate, the sensuality of the person inside them. The perfume, the makeup, the jewelry, the stylishly coiffed hair, and above all, the playful look in the eyes. At once forthright and demure, a look of confidence, And even if she wasn't the most beautiful woman in the world, she acted as if she were. And a woman who could pull that off will inevitably make heads turn, which was no doubt what caused the dour matrons of your father's family to despise her after she left the fold. Those were difficult years, of course, the stretch of years before the long deferred but inevitable breakup with your father, the years of goodbye, darling, and the car She wrecked one night when you were 10. You can still see her bloodied, banged-up face as she walked into the house early the next morning. And although she never told you much about the accident, only a bland, generic account that must have had little to do with the truth, you suspect that alcohol might have been involved and that there was a short period back then when she was drinking too much. For later on, she dropped some hints about having been in AA, And the fact was that she never drank any alcohol for the rest of her life, not one cocktail or glass of champagne, nothing, not even a sip of beer. There were three of her, three separate women who seemed unconnected to one another. And as you grew older and began to look at her differently, to see her as someone who was not just your mother, you never knew which mask she would be wearing on any given day. At one end, there was the diva, the sumptually decked out charmer who dazzled the world in public, the young woman with the obtuse, distracted husband who craved having the eyes of others upon her and would not allow herself, not anymore, to be boxed into the role of traditional housewife. In the middle, which was far and away the largest space she occupied, there was a solid and responsible being, a person of intelligence and compassion, the woman who took care of you when you were young, the woman who went out to work, who ran several small businesses over the course of many years, the four-star joke teller and crossword puzzle ace, a person with her feet firmly planted on the ground, competent, generous, observant of the world around her, a devoted liberal in her politics, a sage dispenser of advice. At the other end, the extreme end of who she was, There was the frightened and debilitated neurotic, the helpless creature, prey to blistering assaults of anxiety, the phobic whose incapacities grew as the years advanced. From an early fear of heights to a metastatic flowering of multiple forms of paralysis, afraid of escalators, afraid of airplanes, afraid of elevators, afraid to drive a car, afraid of going near windows on the upper floors of buildings, afraid to be alone, afraid of open spaces, afraid to walk anywhere. She felt she would lose her balance or pass out. And an ever-present hypochondria that gradually reached the most exalted summits of dread. In other words, afraid to die, which in the end is probably no different from saying afraid to live. When you were young, you were not aware of any of this. She seemed perfect to you. And even during her first attack of vertigo, which you happened to witness when you were six, the two of you climbing up the inner staircase of the Statue of Liberty. You were not alarmed because she was a good and conscientious mother, and she managed to hide her fear from you by turning the descent into a game, sitting on the stairs together and going down one step at a time, asses on the rungs, laughing all the way to the bottom. When she was old, there was no more laughter, only the void spinning around in her head The knot in her belly, the cold sweats, a pair of invisible hands tightening around her throat. Her second marriage was a grand success, the marriage everyone longs for, until it wasn't. You were glad to see her so happy, so clearly in love, and you took her new husband, you took to her new husband without hesitation. not not only because he was in love with your mother and knew how to love her and all the ways you felt she needed to be loved, but because he was an impressive man in his own right, a labor lawyer with an acute mind and a large personality, someone who seemed to take life by storm, who boomed out old standards at the dinner table and told hilarious stories about his past, who instantly embraced you not as a stepson, but as a kind of younger brother, which turned you into close, steadfast friends. And all in all, you thought this marriage was the best thing that had ever happened to your mother, the thing that would make everything right for her at last. She was still young, after all, still not 40 years old. And because he was two years younger than she was, you had every reason to expect they would have a long life together and die in each other's arms. But your stepfather's health was not good. Strong and vigorous as he seemed, he had been cursed with a bad heart. And after a first coronary in his early 30s, he had a second big attack about a year into the marriage, and from then on, there was an element of foreboding that hung over their life together, which only worsened when he suffered a third attack a couple of years later. Your mother lived in constant fear of losing him, and you saw with your own eyes how those fears gradually unhinged her little by little exacerbating the weaknesses she had struggled for so long to keep hidden, the phobic self that roared into full bloom during their last years together. And when he died at 54, she was no longer the person she had been when they were married. You remember her last heroic stand, the night in Palo Alto, California, when she told jokes nonstop to you and your wife as your stepfather lay in the intensive care unit of the Stanford Medical Center, undergoing experimental cardiac treatments. The final desperate move in a case that had been deemed all but hopeless. And the gruesome sight of your mortally ill stepfather, lying on that bed, hooked up to so many wires and machines that the room looked like the set from a science fiction film. And when you walked in and saw him there, you were so stunned and miserable that you found yourself fighting back tears. It was the summer of 1981, and you and your wife had known each other for about six months. You were living together, but not yet married, and as the two of you stood at your stepfather's bedside, he reached out took hold of both your hands and said, "'Don't waste any time. "'Get married now. "'Get married, take care of each other, "'and have 12 children.'" You and your wife were staying with your mother in a house somewhere in Palo Alto, an empty house that had been lent to her by some unknown friend, And that night, after eating dinner in a restaurant, where you nearly broke down again, when the righteous came back to tell you that the kitchen had run out of the dish you had ordered, displaced anguish in its most pronounced form, to such a degree that the nonsensical tears you felt gathering in your eyes might be interpreted as the very embodiment of repressed emotion that can no longer be repressed. And once the three of you had returned to the house, The gloom of a house shadowed in death. All of you convinced that these were the last days of your stepfather's life. You sat down at the dining room table to have a drink. And just when you thought it would be impossible for anyone to say another word, when the heaviness in your heart seemed to have crushed all the words out of you, your mother started telling jokes. One joke, and then another joke. Then another joke, followed by the next joke. Joke. Joke so funny that you and your wife laughed until you could hardly breathe anymore. An hour of jokes, two hours of jokes, each one delivered with such crackerjack timing, such crisp, economical language, that a moment came when you thought your stomach might burst through your skin. Jewish jokes, mostly. An unending torrent of classic Yenta routines with all the appropriate voices and accents. The old Jewish women sitting around a card table and sighing each one sighing in turn, each one sighing more loudly than the last, until one of the women finally says, I thought we agreed not to talk about the children. (laughs) You all went a little crazy that night, but the circumstances were so grim and intolerable that you needed to go a little crazy. And somehow, your mother managed to find the strength to let that happen. A moment of extraordinary courage you felt, a sublime instance of who she was at her best, for great as your misery was that night, you knew that it was nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to hers. Thank you.
0: I will read a few passages, uh, not necessarily consecutive, from a story in the current issue of Granta called The Starveling. When it started, long before the woman, he lived in one room. He did not hope for improved circumstances. This was where he belonged, single window, shower, hot plate, a squat refrigerator parked in the bathroom, a makeshift closet for scant possessions. There is a kind of uneventfulness that resembles meditation. One morning, he sat drinking coffee and staring into space, when the lamp that extended from the wall rustled into flame. Faulty wiring, he thought calmly, and put out his cigarette. He watched the flames rise, the lampshade began to bubble and melt. The memory ended here. He turned north on Sixth Avenue, knowing that the theater would be nearly empty, three or four solitary souls. Moviegoers were souls when there were only a few of them. This was almost always the case late morning or early afternoon. They would remain solitary even as they left the theater, not exchanging a word or glance. He paid at the booth, got his ticket, gave it to the man in the lobby, and went directly to the catacomb toilets. A few minutes later, he took his seat in the small theater and waited for the feature to begin. Wait now, hurry later. These were the rules of the day. Days were all the same. Movies were not. His name was Leo Zelezniak. It took half a lifetime before he began to fit into the name. Did he think there was a resonance in the name, or a foreignness, a history that he could never earn? Other people lived in their names. He used to wonder whether the name itself made any difference. Maybe he would feel this separation no matter what name he carried on the plastic cards in his wallet. He had the road to himself seated dead center as the house went dark. Whatever moons of disquiet and melancholy hovered over his experience, recent or distant, this was the place where it might all evaporate. The woman entered as the feature began. He hadn't seen her in a while and was surprised to realize only now that he'd noted her absence. She was the recent enlistee, is that the word? He wasn't sure when she'd started showing up. She seemed awkward, slightly angular, and she was far younger than the others. There were others, the floating group of four or five people who made the circuit every day, each keeping to his or her rigid schedule, crisscrossing the city theater to theater, mornings, nights, weekends, years. Leo did not count himself part of the group. He did not speak to the others, ever. Not a word, not a look directed their way. He saw them nonetheless, now and then, here and there, one or the other. They were vague shapes with pasty faces planted among the lobby posters in their weary clothing, restless bearing, their post-operative posture. He tried not to care that there were others, but how could it fail to disturb him The sightings were unavoidable. One person at the quad, another the next day at the sunshine, two of them at Empire 25 in the vast rotunda or on a long, steep, narrow escalator that seems to lead to some high-rise form of hell. But this was different. She was different, and he was watching her. She was seated two rows in front of him, end of the row, with the first images bringing pale light to the front of the house. Later, he was following her along the street and out of the heat and noise of this stretch of Broadway into the cool, columned lobby of a major multiplex. She went past the automated ticket machines and approached the counter at the far end of the lobby, posters everywhere, a bare scatter of people. She stepped onto the escalator, and he understood that he could not lose sight of her now, He rode up toward the huge Hollywood mural and onto the carpeted second floor. There was a man on a sofa reading a book. She went past the video game consoles and handed her ticket to a woman stationed at the entrance to the theaters. All these elements, seemingly connected, here to there, step by step, but with no thought in his mind of a purposeful end just the unfixed rhythm of his need. There was no satisfaction in this, having tracked her from the end of one movie to the start of another. He felt only that a requirement had been met, the easing of an indistinct tension. He was halfway down the side aisle when he decided to sit directly behind her. The impulse took him by surprise and he moved into the seat tentatively needing to adjust to the blatant fact of being there. Then the screen lit up and the previews came at them like forms of laboratory torture in swift image and high pitch. Their bodies were aligned, eyes aligned, his and hers. But the movie was hers, her film, her theater, and he wasn't prepared for the confusion. The movie scene stillborn, He could not absorb what was happening. He sat with legs spread, knees braced against the seat in front of him. He was practically breathing on her, and this proximity helped him work his way into things that hadn't been clear up to now. She was a woman alone. This had to be the case. She lives alone in one room, as he did. Those were years that still gathered force in his memory, and the choice he would make, The fact of this life, scratched out, gouged out, first became a vision in that room. She looks down at warped floorboards. There is no bathtub, only a shower with tinny sides that rattle if you lean on them. She forgets to bathe, forgets to eat. She lies in bed, eyes open, and replays scenes from the day's film, shot by shot. She has the capacity to do this. It is natural. It is innate. She doesn't care about the actors, only the characters. They are the ones who speak and look sadly out of windows and die violently. He took his eyes off the screen, her head and shoulders. This is what he looked at. A woman who avoids contact with others sometimes sits in her room staring at a wall, He thinks of her as a true soul, not knowing exactly what that means. Is he sure that she doesn't live with her parents? Can she manage alone? She sees certain movies many times, unlike him. She will hunt down mythical movies, those once in a decade screenings. Leo saw such films only when they drifted into view. She will devote her energies to finding and seeing the elusive masterwork Damaged print, missing footage, running time, 11 hours, 12 hours, nobody seems sure. A privileged act, a blessing. You travel to London, Lisbon, Prague, or maybe just Brooklyn, and you sit in a crowded room and feel transformed. Okay, he understood this. She steps away from her own shadow. She is a scant being trying to find a place to be but there was something she had to understand. This is everyday life. This is the job, day to day. Your head is folded into a newspaper or plugged into a telephone, so you can measure movie times against estimated travel times. You make the slate, keep the hours, remain true to the plan. This is what we do, he thought. He closed his eyes for a time. He tried to see her, standing naked, in body profile, before a mirror. She looked frail, undernourished, watching herself, half wondering who that person is. He thought about her name. He needed a name, a way to claim her, something to know her by. When he opened his eyes, a house stood on screen, alone in a wintry field. He thought of her as the Starveling. That was her name. Thank you.
1: Well, this is a, a good night. Um, these two guys are friends, but they haven't been on a stage in New York City together for 21 years. So, um, if if we have to do another issue of Horror for that to happen, um, that's our next issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask both of you. Um, both both of these pieces are kind of remarkable in that they're they're um, they're, they're about people yourself and uh, the character in your story, Don DeLillo, uh, who are impoverished in a way, um, and who are about uh, who are looking for something to redeem, redeem them and Don, in, in your novels, the so often spectacle is is a is a horrific thing. It's a it's a it's an overwhelming thing. It's a, it's something that deprives us of uh, of um, of what we are as humans. And yet in this story, there's a character who um, in some ways, he his his father died. He goes to see a movie that same day, and then later picks up this habit of going to movies. And in some ways, it feels like he he's redeemed by the spectacle. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Um, He he doesn't have have the variable face that most of us have. Um, He doesn't have the skill to to fake a certain self, as most of us can do from time to time. And there's something about sitting in a movie theater, which he does, roughly four times a day, roughly every day, that, um, that alleviates this, um, this condition of his. And it's, it's actually a very simple thing. This is where he feels safe. And I think many people just going into a theater, sitting down, waiting for the film to begin, share this kind of safety it, it dates back to childhood. And there's something about it that is um, so very different from what we do most of the time that, it's, um, that there is an element of childhood in it. And um, this, is, this is essentially what, um, what Leo experiences every time he walks into a movie theater.
1: Well, I was curious about um, your, your decision to write this book in the second person because it's immediately distancing yet intimate at the same
2: time. Um, well, it is the big question, isn't it? Usually the, the, the decision a novelist has to make or even someone writing an autobiographical work is between I and he, first and third. But in this case, the second person seemed to me at once more intimate than either the first or the third, and also more distancing, as if by talking about myself in the second person, I was um, uh, talking about anybody, and somehow uh, surreptitiously, surreptitiously engaging the reader in the in the process uh, and in the adventure, because you know the fact is the book is about me. But I'm not interested in myself at all. Uh, I really have no You're
1: a very really interesting
2: guy. Well, <laughs> I don't think so. You know, I, I think of myself as just anybody. And I think what I'm talking about in the book are, are things that happen to anybody or everybody. And I think that was why I made this decision, which came very spontaneously. I didn't fret over it. I didn't spend weeks agonizing what to do the book came to me in the second person, and I, and I went with it.
1: Do you, are you at all responding to the invention of solitude? Because in a grim way that all of us experience, you know, when you lost, lose one parent, and then the other, you're alone in the world, and I feel like th- these two books are a pair.
2: Well, I think uh, they're 32 years apart, which is a, a long time, but yes, I do think of them as, as uh, belonging together, even though stylistically they're different, the tone is different. Um, But you see, by talking uh, about my mother tonight, uh, it doesn't really give a sense of what the book is really about. Um, When I said before it's about the history of my body, I I really mean it. It's about uh, pleasures and pains. It's about sex. It's about eating. It's about what your body feels like in the air, in different kinds of weather, being cold, being hot. Um, there's a long sequence in which I go through every place I've ever lived in my life for more than, at least a year, uh, more than 20 places. Interesting. Um, and my mother's in the book because, well, it was in her body where my life began and, uh, and my body began. So I felt that she's, she was part of the story as well.
1: Don DeLillo, speaking of beginnings, uh, this book spans almost four decades worth of short story writing, which I think a lot of people in the audience probably, if unless you're a very, very faithful subscriber to Granta or The New Yorker, um, might be, not be aware that you did. And I, I wonder if, if you could talk just a little bit about the origins of some of these stories and, and their relationship to the novels that you're writing at the time, because some of them track very closely to the novels you published in that period.
0: When I was starting as a writer virtually everybody wrote short stories it was it was the way to build up to a novel uh, uh, unless you were flannery o'connor although she did write some novels she she remained essentially a short story writer and and others of course but the, the short story was a kind of stepping stone to the novel and i published a short story, it's not in in this collection, when I was about 23 in a small magazine. And um, after many rejections, I was um, uh, astonished to get a letter from the editor, uh, handwritten, that accepted my story. And what I wanted to do was to say, wait, I was only kidding, I can do better. (laughs) That's true. I was faintly embarrassed. But um, over the next few years, I continued to write stories. And then, and then finally, um, I felt it was time to, do, to get to work on the novel. And uh, this was like uh, walking into uh, a certain kind of swampland. It took four years for me to write my first novel. And even though I was living right in the middle of New York, um, easy walking distance from, from this bookstore. I had no uh, connections, didn't know any editors, didn't know any agents, didn't know anybody. And when I finished the manuscript, I, um, I sent it to uh, a publisher, Houghton Mifflin, based on a letter someone there, an editor there had sent me concerning um, a short story I'd published. And the next thing I knew, um, I was going to be a published writer. Um, After much, much work, much, much revision on the book, with the help of two editors, not one, um, there it was. As you say, 40 years ago, um, I was a novelist. Um, And um, it seems astonishing to me even now. And I, I still understand, and I never forget, what a lucky life I've had as a writer. Should I go home
1: now? <laughs> We're almost there. Um, <laughs> how how, how have these stories, uh, you know, they do, the, the Starveling was published in Granta one month ago, um, and I, I can't help but, at, as I'm reading it, feel some resonances with the body artist. You know, in, the, in your later novels, there's, there's a very disembodied sort of almost. There's a focus on the body as a kind of final locus for um, what we absorb as humans.
0: You mean this this story? That yeah, this story from... in
1: particular, as well as the novels, *The Body Artist* and *Cosmopolis* and *Point Omega*. Uh, are you writing these these short stories? Uh, you know, as an escape from a novel, or are you? Are... No,
0: no, not at all. I, I follow an idea. That's all, and wherever it takes me. And I know immediately, or, or close to immediately, that a certain idea is for a short story. And as I know that a certain idea will lead me into a novel. And um, for a long time, the, the novel um, was, um, was a, a much stronger um, impetus for me than the short story. But every so often, um, between novels, always, I would uh, go to work on a story and enjoy it um, in a way that a novel can't be enjoyable, I don't think, for its entire length, for the, for the entire amount of time on which you work on it. Uh, I, I think I can enjoy working on a story almost from the first day to the last day. And by enjoy it, I mean on a certain, in a certain way, on a certain level, um, a certain kind of satisfaction. Uh, a novel is, is much more variable and, and has its hills and valleys.
1: Papa, well, we were talking earlier, and, and it was, Don DeLillo has never written a memoir, and um, I think we can definitively say that he probably won't. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and you've, you've written maybe one or two short stories and, and don't seem to write them. Uh, what do you feel like, you know Don Don's work very well when you're reading these stories. What do you see in them that's... Um, what do, you, yeah, what do you see in them?
2: I, I see Don, I, I, I see his prose, I see his, the way he thinks. Um, it's just a smaller scale, that's all. Um, but there's so obviously the work by the writer who's written the novels that we've all read that um, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating to see them, see him working in this smaller um, uh, medium. I myself would love to be able to write short stories, but I I just can't. Um, A couple of my novels, I thought might be 30 or 40 page stories. And then they just sort of grow, they run away from me. Really? Which one? Well, Mr. Vertigo, for example. I I thought of that as going to be a fable of 30 pages. And then uh, I, I wrote it in a kind of frenzy and a year later, you know, it's a 300 page novel.
1: If only that it worked that way for all of us. Well, it was a strange experience. (laughs) Um, I wondered if I could talk to both of you about um, New York City, because it's it's been, it's appeared in many of your books and it seems to have a sustaining fire of some interest and and it appears in The Starveling, um, in a way, in this uh, very wonderfully refracted post 9-11 New York, which isn't even mentioned. Um, what has it been like to write about New York over four decades and and what what have you taken from it that's changed perhaps
0: I I grew up in the Bronx and my earliest stories um, are set there in an Italian neighborhood my parents were immigrants from Italy and in a curious way I had to make the same journey they made Um, for them it was Get on a ship in Naples, end up in New York, grow up in my father's case in Hell's Kitchen, um, and then settle in the Bronx, in a, in, um, in an area that was largely and is still partly Italian. And I felt that I had to discover America the way they did, and the way to do it was to leave this somewhat narrow, uh, confined space. And for me, the great journey, um, and it was, uh, it was a challenge, was simply to go from the Bronx to Manhattan. Um, take a subway, you know? But it wasn't, that, uh, it wasn't that simple. Everything was different. The rules, the, the, the way people spoke, the clothing, uh, the lack of accent, uh, in most cases, or many other kinds of accents. And the great challenge of trying to understand this culture, um, which um, I, I guess it's no coincidence that I titled my first novel *Americana*. That's where I that's where I found myself um, at the beginning of America, so to speak. And um, and since then, um, I spent endless hours um, just looking at at New York City, various parts of it, Manhattan and the South Bronx and and elsewhere, and trying to absorb what it all means um, and then trying to forget that and and to distill it into sentences, into language. I like to think that uh, I don't exactly write in English, I write in American.
2: Well, New York was part of my childhood as well. I didn't grow up here, but uh, my mother grew up in Brooklyn and moved at the age of 16 to Manhattan. And uh, even though I lived in New Jersey, that's where I was born, spent my early years, we're very close to New York. And uh, I came in a lot. And so Manhattan, it was always Manhattan, was very familiar to me as a child. And I... I was very attracted to it. I I loved it. And uh, I think that's why the minute I could get out of that little New Jersey world, maybe not unlike the little Bronx world Don is talking about, I made a beeline for Manhattan and went to Columbia as a student because I wanted to be here. It was less the the college than the place that that drove me here. Um, I don't know, I've lived in New York so much of my life um, which is getting to be a longer life every minute. Um, it passed uh,
1: more slowly up here.
2: Yeah, well, it's uh, quite amazing. Uh, as uh, people have said, you know, what a strange thing to happen to a little boy. Well, here it is. Uh, I've, I feel there are many New Yorks, and I, I think I've explored different kinds of New Yorks in, in my books. There, there, there's, there's a terrifying New York there's a, um, a solitary New York, and and there's also um, a New York of friends and friendship, and I think in one way or another I've explored these things in different different kinds of books. Uh, it's it's hard to compare, say, the the solitary souls in the New York trilogy, wandering alone through the streets of New York, with, say, the um, the talkative. Uh, strange people in something like the Brooklyn Follies. Um, so for me, there is no one in New York. It's, it's many, many different places at once.
1: Well, I think that's a good place uh, to stop. Um, I, I, I want to thank both Don DeLillo and Paul Oster for, for coming to <laughs> read to us. Thank you. The, uh, the, the books are The Angel, Esmeralda, Nine Stories. Uh, Paul's book you can get in August of next year, but he has plenty of other books that are, that are here and he's gonna be willing to sign, as will Mr. DeLillo. And I'm sure both of them will also be willing to sign Grant's new issue, uh, Theme to Horror. Um, I think all the atheists in the audience can agree, there is something kind of spooky and wonderful when words are spoken and, and read aloud, something else happens to them. So as awful as it is, it is to somehow uh, in public sometimes it is also wonderful to hear you read thank you. so thank
2: you thanks john
0: thank you very much for listening and join us next time